You'll recall that when we were back the last time in the Old Testament, we took the book of Proverbs. We said that Solomon was the writer of the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And we find here in this particular book something different than the book of Proverbs. There you see the wisdom of Solomon And here you'll see the foolishness of this man. And Solomon is the writer. I think it's very well established among conservative expositors that Solomon was the writer. There's certainly no reasonable explanation for the book other than that Solomon was the author of it. And it actually is a dramatic autobiography of his life when he got away from God. Ecclesiastes, the word itself means preacher or philosopher. And I rather like the term philosopher better than preacher here because it's being misunderstood. Now, here it's important to see the purpose of this book. The fact of the matter is, you've probably noted that I give an introduction to every book of the Bible that we study. And I think that the purpose of any book of the Bible is important to the correct understanding of it. We need to get off and get a perspective of it. We need to put the telescope down on the Word of God before we pick up the microscope. And here is a book where I think that that's probably more evident than in any other book of the Bible. Here you have human philosophy apart from God, and it must always reach the conclusions that this book reaches. It's inevitable that that come about. Therefore, there are many statements that you and I are going to find in this book or contradict certain other statements in Scripture. Actually, it almost frightens us to know that this book has been the favorite of atheists, And they've quoted from it profusely. For example of that is Volney and Voltaire. And today, the cynic and the one today who is critical is apt to quote from this book. And then it's quite interesting the number of cults that use passages from this book because they can take them entirely out of context and give them an, an entirely wrong meaning. Now, man has tried to be happy without God, and it's being tried every day by millions of people. And this book shows the absurdity of the attempt. Solomon was the wisest of men, and he had a wisdom that was God-given, and he tried every field of endeavor and pleasure that's known to man, and his conclusion is, All is vanity. The word vanity means empty. It's all empty, purposeless. And you never attain satisfaction in life by following this process. Now, God showed Job, a righteous man, that he was a sinner in God's sight. Now, in Ecclesiastes, God showed Solomon, the wisest man, that he's a fool in God's sight. Believe me, this is a place where there are a great many professors today, PhDs, THDs, 
and preachers today could learn a great lesson, that in spite of all their wisdom, in spite of all the attempt at being intellectual, that man in the sight of God is a fool. And that, my friend, is something that's hard to take. That is for some who put emphasis upon their IQ and the amount of information that they've accumulated. Now, it's quite interesting to find the estimation that certain men have given of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, in this book, we learn that without Christ, we cannot be satisfied. Even if we possess the whole world and have what men consider today the thing that is for their heart's content, the thing that should satisfy. But today the world cannot satisfy the heart because the heart's too large for the object. And when we get to the next book that Solomon wrote in the Song of Solomon, we learn that if we turn from the world and set our affections on Christ, we cannot fathom the infinite preciousness of his love. Here, the object is too large for the heart. Now, there have been many things said about the book, and we'll be referring to that as we go through. I'd like to say again that vanity, that word is the key. And also, under the sun is a key. And very frankly, there is another expression, I said in my heart. In other words... These are the cogitations of man's heart. These are conclusions that men have reached through their own intelligence, their own experiments, and the conclusions are not inspired, but the word that tells you about them is inspired. And therefore, you have in this book, I said in my heart, under the sun, vanity. Now, these are three words that occur again and again. For instance, vanity occurs 37 times, under the sun occurs 29 times, and I do not really know how many times that I said in my heart occurs. I haven't made a study that far along. Now, I'd like to give you an outline here because, again, here's a book that a great many folk think it's without rhyme and reason, and it's just a bunch of verses stuck together. That's actually not true. What you have here is a problem that is stated. And that's in the first three verses of the first chapter. And then the experiment is going to be made. And the problem is stated that all is vanity in this world. All right, experiments. And from verse 4 of the first chapter through verse 12 of the 12th chapter, you find this experiment made seeking satisfaction in many different avenues, many different fields. There'll be science or the laws of nature, wisdom and philosophy, pleasure, materialism, living for the now, fatalism, egoism or egotism, religion, wealth, morality. These are the things that Solomon tried. And he'll give us then the result of the experiment in the last two verses of the book. 
Now, I want us to get started today in this very, I think, interesting book. Here, and let me read the first three verses. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know anyone that fits except Solomon. David did have other sons, but this one is king in Jerusalem. And the only one that was king in Jerusalem was Solomon. And he's a philosopher here. Well, he was given a wisdom. I think a wisdom that is a little different than we think that it is. We think that he was given a spiritual insight. I don't think that was the kind of wisdom. I think he was given wisdom of government, of political economy. And I think Solomon probably did a marvelous job in ruling the nation, but he did not know how to rule himself nor his household. But he did know how to rule the nation, and he brought in an era of peace, and the nations of the world came there to study and to behold the wisdom of Solomon. He gave a testimony for God through the temple there and the altars where sacrifice was made for sinners. All this was new. And the queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth, and that's what she found out. But actually, in the area of spiritual discernment, Solomon was probably nil in that area. Now we find this man, when he's away from God, launching out in this type of thing under the sun. And the man under the sun here is different today than the child of God that it is said that he is seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ. Now, that's different than this man here. Now, he says in verse 2, "...vanity of vanities," says the preacher. Well, actually here, it speaks of emptiness. It's to waste your life without any purpose, without any goal, just to live like an animal lives or like a bird that lives. And a great many people live like that. I was in a hotel out in the Hawaiian Islands where the jet set comes. As you know, they fly all over the world. They spend a few days or weeks in a hotel here. Then they go to Acapulco down in Mexico. Then they go along the Riviera in France. And then they go to Spain. They go to North Africa. They go to South Africa. They just go all over the world. And I watch these folks, and the thing that impressed me about them, and as I listened to their conversation at dinner table and in the lobby and in the different places in the elevators, as I listened to them, how purposeless their life really was. One of them would say, well, I saw so-and-so back at a certain place in New York. I was there this winter. And did you see a certain play? Where are you going to from here? Wasn't that place where we were last year, wasn't it a bore? And they have no aim in life, no goal in life, no purpose in life. Now, that's the conclusion, by the way, that Solomon came to. Vanity of vanities, 
emptiness of emptiness. It's just like a big bag of nothing, if you please. And what we have, therefore, is a very remarkable book here. That is, this book here of Ecclesiastes. And here is a man that has tried everything. In the book of Proverbs, we have his gems of wisdom. He gives us a green light there. And in Ecclesiastes, there are globules. And there are globules not of wisdom, but of folly. Red light is on here. And then in the Song of Solomon, why, love is the subject. And here you have wisdom, folly, our foolishness, and love. And Solomon was an expert in all three fields. He knew how to play the fool. He could be wise in his government. Also, his love light was quite a story. Now, Solomon, the wisest man, according to the wisdom of the world, yet no man ever played the fool more thoroughly than he did. And he is the riddle of Revelation. He's the paradox of Scripture. He's the wisest man and at the same time the biggest fool. And this book in Ecclesiastes is going to reveal that. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So that what we have here in Ecclesiastes, this is the Bible's Alice in Wonderland. It's the Disneyland. He tried all the rides of this life. And Ecclesiastes has been called, as we've indicated, the dramatic autobiography of the life of Solomon when he got away from God. Here is life without God, under the sun, a man walking and talking under the sun, the man that you see today. You meet them today, trying to get something out of life. Now, there's another class of people that I meet in motels and hotels as I go around. They are the ones that are conventioneers. They attend conventions. This is the day of conventions. And I've just recently been in a motel where there was a great company of people there that were attending a convention. And again, you can listen to the conversations. Different than the others, but they are looking for something. They had a big cocktail party the night before. They had a big bust, you know, a big beer bust. And they had a big show. They put on a big banquet. They've tried it all. But there is that note of bitterness, and there are the dregs that are left in the glass of life. And that is the thing here. And you find this man now making an experiment. He's going to squeeze the juice of life out of the dry rocks of this mundane existence down here. And now he's going to begin. Now, verse 3 says, "...what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun?" Now, let's understand. This is under the sun. This is man's viewpoint. God's not giving his viewpoint here. This is all under the sun. This is not under the sun and over the moon. This happens to be just under the sun. And it happens to be a picture of man apart from God attempting to find satisfactions in life. Now, the first thing that he tries 
is this matter of, we would call it science, or you can call it the laws of nature. He began to make a study of that. And that's interesting. Men today that have gone into the scientific field have spent actually years, in fact, a lifetime studying these laws of nature. And this book is remarkable in giving us these laws of nature. Now, will you notice he found this to be true. Listen to this, verse 4. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. Now, the earth is permanent. It has a stability that man doesn't have, because man is merely temporary. And you have now contemporary man. He's a little different than the man of the past and probably be a great deal different than the man of the future. But man's temporary. And the continuity of mankind is maintained through births. In other words, you and I weren't here a hundred years ago. I don't think many of you were. And you and I won't be here a hundred years from today. In fact, there's some of us won't be around much longer. But mankind will continue, and it'll continue through births. Now, he's noted that one generation passeth away, another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. Man is a transitory creature. And that is one of the things that makes this life actually, if you want to look at life today, in terms of this life only, may I say to you that man is the most colossal failure in God's universe. Why, he's just around here a few years. Why, these redwood trees up in northern California that I drove through, some of them there, that were here when Christ was on earth. And they are around quite a while, but after all, they're just really little primaries. They haven't really been here long. The rocks around us, they tell us, been here millions of years, billions of years. I don't know. I don't think they know either. But you and I are on an earth that's been around for quite a while. It was here before man got here, and it's going to be here after most of us leave this earth. Now, my friend, may I say to you, this adds, as you can see, a certain dimension to man and to life that's rather discouraging, disappointing. Man is not what he thinks that he is. You know, Solomon, with all that he had, found life monotonous. That was a, oh, that sameness to it. Tried to get away from it. People today doing everything under the sun. Most of us have sand in our shoes itchy feet. We're running everywhere, going everywhere today. Motels and hotels are filled. The highways and freeways are filled today with people. They're on the go. What's happening? Well, looking for satisfaction, getting away from the boredom and the monotony of life. And I say to you, if you're just going to look at man as he is today, apart from God, it's not a pretty picture, my friend, and that's what Ecclesiastes will present to us. Now, will you notice something else? Verse 5. I trust that you have your Bible here. 
Now, verse 5 is tied on to this next verse here, verse 6, and we'd like to consider them together. In fact, verse 7 also. He says here, "...the sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose." The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about to the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Under the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Now, here is without doubt one of the most remarkable statements in the Scripture. And here is a revelation that Solomon made a study of science or of the laws of nature, as probably that would be the better term, and he knew a great deal about these things. And it's quite interesting that these are some of the things that are basic today as far as science is concerned. I'd like to read to you a statement made by Dr. A.T. Pearson, and I'm reading now from him. There is a danger in pressing the words in the Bible into a positive announcement of scientific fact. So marvelous are some of these correspondences. But it is certainly a curious fact that Solomon should use language entirely consistent with discoveries as evaporation and storm currents. Some have boldly said that Redfield's theory of storms is here explicitly stated. Without taking such ground, we ask, who taught Solomon to use terms that readily accommodate facts? who taught him that the movement of the winds, which seem to be so lawless and uncertain, are ruled by laws as positive as those which rule the growth of the plant, and that by evaporation the waters that fall on the earth are continually rising again, so that the scene never overflows. And then he goes on to speak about Ecclesiastes 12.6, he says, is a poetic description of death. The silver cord describes the spinal marrow, the golden bowl, the basin, which holds the brain, the pitcher, the lungs, and the wheel, the heart. Without claiming that Solomon was inspired to foretell the circulation of the blood 26 centuries before Harvey announced it, is it not remarkable that the language he uses exactly suits the facts. A wheel pumping up through one pipe to discharge through another. Now, that is remarkable. Now you have here three very interesting statements in these verses that we have here before us. He says, "...the sun rises, goeth down." There is a monotony in nature also. But also there is that which you can depend on. You can depend on the sun coming up. You can depend on it going down. Now, that's the terminology we use, and it 
has accommodated all ages. Yet I'm sure most of us know today that what actually is the coming up of the sun and the going down of it really is the rotation of the earth. But may I say, as far as we are concerned, we're standing on a pretty solid piece of ground, and it looks to us like the sun's come up and the sun goes down. Nothing wrong with that. The statement is something that is absolutely amazing, that this is something that is done in a precise, regular way, that it is obeying certain laws. Now, the wind goeth toward the south, he says. Now, we know that the wind is following certain patterns. And today, men are not able to predict the weather as they should. They have many scientific gadgets. But our weatherman here in Southern California, where we have a rather monotony of good weather, yet he misses it, I would say, 50% of the time. That is, as to the exact prediction that he gives. I've watched that very carefully over the years. Now, the Lord Jesus, you remember, spoke into this picture also. He said, the wind bloweth where it listed. That is, where it wants to blow. It's blowing according to laws. You hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell where it's coming, where it's going. Now, as I've made this tape, we've had quite a bit of disturbance across the country. Here in Southern California, we never get any kind of rain in August, we just don't have that. We've been having showers. Can't believe it. I couldn't believe it the other night. In my car, I had to use the windshield wiper. And they tell us that there was a low pressure here and a high pressure there, and that there was this movement. Wind's blowing. Wind bloweth where it listed. Or as Solomon put it, the wind goeth toward the south. It turneth again and go to the north. And one place, it's moving south, and in another place, it's moving north. And over in Arizona, they even had flooding in desert communities, all because of the wind. And it's obeying certain laws as it's blowing. How did Solomon know about that? He didn't have the gadgets that we have or the background to base his predictions on. Now, he also noted something else, that the rivers run into the sea, but the sea's not full. In other words, he's tacitly speaking of the law of evaporation, of the elevation of the moisture into the air. Then the wind comes along and blows that over, and there are lakes up above us, rivers up above us, and the Lord moves them out from the sea to the land, and then he lets it pour out. And all of that's following a certain definite, specific law. There's nothing really haphazard that's happening, although we may think so. The very interesting thing is, here you have three, and of course, we saw one in verse 4. We really have four remarkable statements here concerning the laws of nature that today makes sense. They fit right into what men know today. Now, you get writings that come from a thousand years before Christ came into the world, and you see what they have to say. You'll find out that there's a great deal of superstition, a great deal that is false, a great deal that 
won't bear inspection at all. But this is another one of the remarkable things about the Word of God. Now, in verse 8, he makes another very remarkable statement here. Will you notice it? He says, "...all things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing." And if men didn't believe that is true, they certainly ought to in this day of TV. Some people can look at it hours during the day and still keep looking at it. Why? Because the eye is never satisfied with seeing, ears never filled with hearing. And I'm sure all of us uh, love to go to new places, see new scenes. That is one of the things that I have enjoyed about this life. And one of the things I enjoy about this wonderful country that I live in, why any area you go in... Now, many of us like to kid somebody that comes from a certain state, and I get kidded because I come from the state of Texas. Of course, it's all jealousy on the part of a lot of folk, but they kid me about coming from Texas. But I want to say this to you very candidly. I haven't been in a state yet, and I've been in most of them, that I didn't like. They're all wonderful. And you and I live in a wonderful country and on a wonderful universe. I is not satisfied with seeing the air with here, and we just keep looking all the time. Man cannot exhaust the exploration of the universe. The more he learns, the more he sees that he should learn. The more he learns, reveals there's still more to learn. And this is frustrating. The physical universe is too big for little man. And he alone, of God's creatures, as far as we know, is able to comprehend it. I'm of the opinion that the dog I used to have that take walking, we hear of a dog baying the moon. I don't think that he knew the distance up there, and I don't think he cared. And I don't think that he recognized that he was living in a vast universe. The dog's world, I think, is a pretty small world. It's not any bigger than a bone most of the time. Now, will you notice, he moves on here. He says, "...the thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there's no new thing under the sun." Now, actually, there really is not. great many people think because we come up with some new manufactured gadget like TV, actually the telephone. I can remember when the telephone was quite a novelty. In fact, we were on a line in West Texas in the country that when you answered the phone, you heard about a dozen telephones being lifted from the receiver. Because I tell you... That was the way to get the word out if you wanted to make an announcement. Just have the telephone ring and you could make it because it would go all up and down the highway in that day, which wasn't, of course, much of a highway. Now, the thing that is quite remarkable here is nothing new under the sun. Now, I want to say that actually there's nothing new. You say, well, how about the airplane, all of that? Well, let me say to you that there's really nothing new under the sun. Now, let me illustrate that to you. My grandfather, he courted my grandmother on an old horsehair sofa in a very staid living room 
down in Mississippi. And I'm telling you, it was really a back number. But he proposed to her there, and she accepted, and they got married. And my dad, he courted my mother. They'd met her on a train, a day coach, years ago. And he had a horse and buggy, and he took her in the horse and buggy to be married in Tyler, Texas. And that's the way that came about. And then I proposed to my wife down in Texas, and we were in a car. And I got a little grandson. I wondered how he's going to propose. Probably in a jet plane, but by the time he gets old enough, there'll be something new. He may propose in a space capsule. And somebody says, isn't that new? No, may I say to you, the same feeling my granddad had when she said yes is the same feeling I had. And I don't think that grandson of mine's going to have any different feeling than I've had. Really, there's nothing new under the sun. We may have a little different environment, a new gadget around, but there really is nothing new under the sun. Man is the same, and he gets a little different setting. The stage is generally set a little differently in each age, but same thing, by the way. Now, will you notice, he moves on here and he says, Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. It hath been already of old time which was before us. Well, the statement that there's no new thing under the sun, it does seem to be untrue in this age of gadgetry. But it's true. You know, the atom bomb, they say, is new. But actually, the atom's been around a long time. The atom's older than man. Although man did not know it existed for a long time, it was here. And all man has accomplished is to make the little Adam a very difficult neighbor. The nosy human should have let sleeping dogs lie, by the way. But we probe around and we don't find anything new. It's been here all the time. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, somebody says, what about the computer? Well, God has given us a computer brain, that's all we got, an electronic nervous system, and it can bring to man no deep and abiding satisfaction. Man has learned that these things around him today are not really new. They don't give him anything new. I forgot to say there is one thing new. That's the new birth. <laughs> and may I say to you that that is something that comes when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And that, my friends, about the only thing new that's going to be coming your way is the new birth. That's all. Now, Solomon tried all of these things, and he had to conclude this part by saying, "...there is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. Man tries every way in the world to keep himself before the public, but it doesn't take him long till he passes off the stage. You remember who the popular movie stars were 50 years ago? Do you remember who was the popular athlete 50 years ago? 
By the way, could you name the president of the United States 50 years ago? No, there's no remembrance of former things. Art as long as time is fleeting. And we spend our time down here, as the Scripture says, as a tale that is told. And we can't go back over it again. And that is the conclusion that Solomon came to here in this first experiment that he made. Now we find here he's going to seek satisfaction in wisdom and philosophy in verses 12 through 18. We'll get the pleasure in the second chapter. Now here's the experiment. He says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. Now, what he says here is, he said, you know, I've spent a lot of time studying philosophy of the world. And isn't it interesting? Solomon lived, oh, nearly a thousand years before Christ. We live 2,000 years this side. 3,000 years has elapsed, and man has come up with a great deal of gadgetry. But do you know that actually he doesn't know any more about philosophy and wisdom than he knew 3,000 years ago? There's been no improvement made in the matter of wisdom and philosophy. These things, they do not satisfy, cannot satisfy At all, he says in verse 14, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. He says, you spend your time in making this experiment. You spend your time in studying this subject. And it's nothing in the world but just actually a waste of time. And as you know, we're living in a day when they are trying to say that all the past methods of education were just a waste of time. I wonder how good the present method is. I think just a waste of time, by the way. Man, by wisdom and philosophy, he can never know God. (laughs) He never can really find out the important thing. Only by revelation does he get those. Now, this man Solomon is making a tremendous experiment. He's making it in the laboratory of life. And he is trying out everything that's available to man. And in his day, he was able to go into any field that he wanted to go into. And not many men even today would be permitted to do what Solomon was able to do. And he attempted, first of all, to give himself to a study of the laws of nature. But he found out that even there, there was nothing that you could learn in nature, nothing in science that would be new to you in the sense that it would bring new life to you. Only the new birth could possibly do that, and that was the only new thing. Then here in verse 15 where we've come, we're in the section where he tries out philosophy, that is, He tries out man's own planning and man's own scheming to see how he can work out the problems of life and come to some happy solution. 
Now, today, philosophy leads generally to a pessimistic viewpoint of life. That is the thing that generally happens. Now, verse 15 says this, "...that which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is warning cannot be numbered." Now, you cannot take a natural man, a man that is a lost sinner, alienated from God, and give him an education and expect that education to solve the problems of life. It will not do that. Philosophy and psychology cannot change human nature, nor can they even correct the old nature of man. Because here we are told that which is crooked cannot be made straight. Man hasn't any way of straightening out human nature. We have an old bromide that goes like this. As the twig is bent, so the tree grows. That's the way that it will grow. It will be crooked because the twig was crooked. And you and I start out with an old nature, and you can educate it, and you can do many things with it and to it. But the Lord Jesus said, "...that which is born of the flesh is flesh." It'll always be flesh, friends. And that's the reason man must have a new nature, because that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That's one of the greatest principles that there is. And today we have seen that education will not solve the problems of life. Now, with the things that have happened in the past few years, higher education, in fact, all education, is coming under the scrutiny of a great many thoughtful people. And there are others that have tried to come up with a solution. The committee to study the higher education today is come up with this very novel explanation. They say that the riots on campuses and all of this immorality that's taken place is because of the fact that the young people today are inquiring more and they are more interested in politics and in what is happening in their world. Well, I would say that That's true that there is an interest today because of so many terrible things happening and because of the news media through television and radio and paper today really gathers it from the four corners of the earth in a day and lets you see it and hear it in that evening so that we're more aware of what takes place in the world today than we ever were before. There was a time when it would be six weeks before they'd find out who really was elected president after an election. It took that long to get all the information in. Today they can tell you who's going to be elected before they have the election. That's a novel way of going at it, but that's what they do today. So that we've come a long way. And I would concur with the first part of it. But I disagree heartily with the last part of it, which says that is the reason that young people have been led to rioting and this type of thing, because that it's not a deterioration on the campus, but actually improvement. Well, we have come to the day that Isaiah said they're going to call good evil and evil good, and they do that today. May I say to you, that's a novel way that only an educated man could come up with. 
is to say that the deterioration on the campus today is not deterioration, but actually improvement. Now, if you believe fairy stories, you can go along with that. But my friend, may I say to you, education cannot solve the problems of life. And as I've said many times on this broadcast, and I continue to repeat it, and will continue to repeat it, is this, that psychology is not the answer today. Now, there have been a group of very clever men and women, I think, too, that have come up with some little psychological cliché to explain and solve the problems of life, and it's just covered over with a little Bible. It's just like, you know, a pill, a bitter pill that's covered over with a little sugar. Well, may I say to you that all of this pretends to be the Bible's solution. Well, it's not the Bible's solution. Actually, the Word of God contains for the Christian today the answer to the problems of life. And it doesn't come about through some little pious and sugar-coated Bible pill that is given out and it has psychological and philosophical implications. That's not the solution. Some men are doing pretty well financially themselves with it. But I want to tell you, the Christian public is really being taken in. And I say this kindly to you. Why don't you get back to the Bible? Why don't you come to it today? There's no easy solution to the problems of life. And studying the Word of God requires a great deal of, I would say, mental perspiration. And it's needed today. And it's needed today in the church. So that Solomon found out that philosophy and education and psychology did not have the answer to the problems of life. Now, will you notice what he says in verse 16? He says, I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I'm come to great estate, and I've gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this man was led to a certain amount of I think arrogance, a certain amount of conceit, since he was wiser than the others. And knowledge, as Paul says, puffeth up. It always inflates an individual like a balloon if he feels like he's a little smarter or better educated than those that are around him. But again, education has to fall back on experience, and experience is something you cannot trust. It has to be tested by the Word of God. The thing today is that a great many people are testing the Word of God by their experience. My friend, you need to test your experience by the Word of God and see if it will stand up and under it. Now, will you notice verse 17? He says, "...and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly." And the very interesting thing is that wisdom and playing the fool are not very far apart. How many smart men in the history of the world have played the fool? Solomon did. He's one of the most notable examples of that. The man that we call it the King James Bible 
Of course, he actually had nothing to do with the translation of it in doing any translating. He never would have been capable. You know why? He was called James the Fool. And the reason he was called that, because that's what he was. But he thought he was a very smart individual. And today I think that we as a nation have produced a generation that think that they are very intelligent and very smart. And yet we cannot even solve the problems that are about us, nor can we solve the problems of the world. And so this man gave his heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. And probably no man played the fool any more than Solomon did. He said, I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. In other words, it's not worth the effort. And verse 18, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Now, joy and satisfaction do not increase in ratio to the increase of knowledge. Someone has said that when ignorance is bliss, it's folly to be wise. And there's a certain amount of truth in that. In much wisdom, there's much grief. The more we know, the more we increase our problems. And life today has become tedious, and it produces tension, and all of these scientific gadgets that we have around us are making life almost unbearable. A man said to me just the other day, he's a Christian, by the way, he said, you know, I think I'm going to lose my mind if I don't get away from these computers these machines that have become our masters and that are controlling life today. They produce the air we breathe, which is smog in our place, and they are the ones that are producing most of the work that's around us. And we think how wonderful a machine is, and we fall down and worship before it. But he says it's driving us to madness today. How true, for in much wisdom is much grief. And you must remember, Solomon did not live in the machine age. He did not see the Industrial Revolution, but he certainly knew what he was talking about. Now we come to chapter 2, and we see him now following another course to find satisfaction in life. And this is the route that a great many are taking today, seeking satisfaction and pleasure. And in the next 11 verses here in chapter 2, why he goes into that. Listen to him. He says, I said in mine heart, go to now, therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this is also vanity. Now, this man, Solomon, I think he probably tried everything that is known today in the way of pleasure. Now, we are sex praised and a sex-mad people. And what do we have to show for it? Well, we have certainly low morals, and we have venereal disease that's in epidemic stage today. Now, Solomon was rather an expert in this area of sex, and today the church has gone in this direction, and I suppose most pastors have a sermon on sex. Some of them have a whole series. And there are many today that feel like that we should have a course in the church 
to teach our young people about sex. May I say, I'm very much of a square. I think that's a big and tragic mistake. That's my idea. This generation is getting sex right up to here, and I'm now putting my hand up to my ears. We are getting all of it that I think we need. But in spite of all of that, may I say to you, I submit to you that Solomon was the expert in this area. He had a thousand wives. Now, not all of them were wives. A great many of them were what would be called concubines. But they were all available to him. And a man that's got a thousand of those around is some sort of an expert, my friend. And Solomon tried that field. He went in for drinking. He went in for entertainment. He had the outstanding nightclub of the country in his day. He could have put on a performance that would make Las Vegas look like it was Penny Annie and that it was a sideshow in a small circus. But this is the thing this man tried, pleasure. Now, will you listen to him in his experience? He said, I said in my heart, go to now. I'll prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. And the word vanity, as we've said before, means empty. And he said, I said of laughter, it's mad and of mirth. What doeth it? He said, I have had a fool at court that entertained me, told me the latest jokes, and many of them, I suppose, that were questionable. And he said that, I found out that this was a great waste of time. He said, I sought mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven, that is, under the sun, all the days of their life. Now, this is a man probing at life, making experiments apart from God. Now he said here that I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. These were all hobbies with Solomon, of course. You can go to that land today. You can see his stables, ruins of them in several places, right in Jerusalem. There are the ruins, and up at Megiddo, the thing that they will show you, the ruins of the troughs there, apparently where the horses ate. Solomon had stables all over that land, and he was forbidden, that is, the Mosaic law forbade the king to do that. Then he said, I made me pools of water. Now, he had a swimming pool. The water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. He had irrigation. I got me servants and maidens. I had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle, above all that were in Jerusalem before me. He had him a ranch out at the edge of town where he raised this. Somebody says, how could he afford all of this? Well, Solomon cornered the gold in his day. He had plenty of spending money, and he went in for entertainment, and he built him all of the comforts of life. They know today that they brought down from Mount Hermon snow, so that he could have cold drinks in summertime. And now Solomon, I think, tried everything that a man today could try for pleasure. I don't think there could be any exception to this whatsoever. 
and it just didn't seem to work out. Listen to him. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I get me men singers and women singers. He brought in the best nightclub acts from Las Vegas. They didn't really satisfy him. And the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. He said, I had all kinds of music, the sweet music, the rock music. I had it all, but it didn't satisfy. So I was great, and I increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Ms. McGee and I are out a great deal in conferences, and one of the things we like to do some evenings to get away from everyone after a service, we just walk through a shopping area. And I have said to her, would you like some time to be able to buy everything that you see and want? She said she wondered how it would feel to do that. Well, Solomon did that. Anything that his little heart wanted, why, he bought. And as he looked out upon this world, there's nothing that it withheld from him. Now, the question is, would this bring satisfaction? Would it bring joy to his heart? Imagine being in a unique position like that. You would think that a man like that would be happy. Well, I don't know why, but they're not. Here in Southern California, we have more suicides, I'm told, than the average is in the country. And you would think that it would probably be the bums on Skid Row that would be the ones that commit suicide. Life certainly doesn't seem to be worth much to them. But friends, it's not those people that are committing suicide. It's the rich, the famous, and the Hollywood stars, the folk that seem to have made it. They are the ones that commit suicide. Why? Because they've come to the same conclusion that Solomon did. When he tried everything in the way of pleasure, in verse 11 he says, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun." Just think, this is the conclusion Solomon came to, and yet a great many people have to make the same experiment, only not near to the extent Solomon did, but they always come out at the same end of the horn. They come out and say, it was all vanity, empty, just empty nothing, just a big bunch of nothing. That's all that life proved to be. Now, in verse 12, through the remainder of this chapter, he moves into an area, and I do wish I had a better word for it, but I don't, and I call it materialism. We would say today that it's living for the now. This is the now generation. Now. And it's all right because the Bible presents a now generation. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And so I think I belong to that now generation. But now this man, he tries out. 
here, materialism, living for the here and now, living for self, selfishness. All of these words describe a facet of this type of living, and there are many like this. Now listen to him. Verse 12, Ecclesiastes 2. And I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. And what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath been already done? In other words, no one could live it up more than Solomon did. And he said they'd have to repeat what he did, and they'd find it very monotonous. Verse 13, Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. In other words, it's better to be wise than to be foolish. It's better to be a wise man than it is to be a fool. It's better to be an educated man than to be an ignorant man. Most people would accept that, I'm sure. And Solomon is saying that. But notice the conclusion that he comes to. While the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. I used to hear it when I was in school. I've had my parents use it with me. I've had school teacher. Use your mind. Use your head. Use your eyes. And that's what Solomon is saying here. A wise man uses his eyes, uses his head. The fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. But it does make any difference how smart you are. You don't really get too far away from the fool, because both going to come out at the same place, and they're going to carry your feet forward out and bury you in the ground or put you somewhere. You're both going to end up the same way. Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me, and why was I then more wise? You'd think a smart fellow would find another way out. Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Isn't it interesting that man, with all he knows today, and with all of the tremendous inventions that have come to pass, and even scientific advances have been made in the realm of medicine, Yet man today cannot extend human life very long. They say, my, the average life is up now another ten years. Ten years? You want to put ten years down by a thousand, see how much you got? You want to put ten years down by eternity and see what you have? Ten years. Well, you don't even have a minute on the clock of eternity. You don't have a second on that clock, my friend. The thing is that man really hasn't done very much for himself here on this earth. Not at all. Now, will you notice verse 16? For there's no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool? Same way. They die just the same way. You can't learn anything. I don't care how high your IQ is. I don't care how many Ph.D. degrees you have or Th.D. or any kind of a D degree. Why, it doesn't make any difference. My friend, you don't know anything that's going to really help you out when the time comes to die because you're going to go right out that door 
and there's nothing in the world that'll keep you from it. Now, listen to this man Solomon. Therefore, he says, I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, as we've said before, vanity here means that which is empty, meaningless, purposeless. He said, granted that I do all of this, what have you done? Take Thomas A. Edison. Thomas A. Edison, oh, how he worked in the laboratory and how many things he developed, especially electric light bulb, the Victrola, all of these recording instruments. They go back to Thomas A. Edison, a man that was a genius. But, you know, he died just like anybody else. <laughs> he never found out anything, never really knew anything. And what good did it do him? After all, this man says, I hated life. My life became an awful bore. And that's what it is for a great many people today. Because the work that's wrought under the sun, he says, it's grievous unto me. It became a great ordeal. We think of Thomas A. Edison again in the laboratory working day and night. That's not accurate. He couldn't sleep. He had insomnia of the worst kind. He had a little bed in his laboratory. You can see it down in Fort Myers, Florida. And if you're ever down there, you ought to go by there and take that trip. It's very much worthwhile of going through the Edison home and the laboratory that he had there. And this man would just work a few hours at a time, day and night, purposeless, really. All oh, the things he tried to do that never did work out. Actually... You don't get the impression that there was a great thrill going on in his life. I take it that Thomas A. Edison found life very boring. I think you get that impression down there. Now listen to Solomon here in verse 18. Yea, I hated all my labor, which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. i got to go off and leave all of this someday. Have you ever stopped to think about that? What good's it going to do you? And a great many people today wonder about leaving what they have. Worked all their lives to accumulate a little and then go off and maybe leave it to some godless relative or leave it to some godless son or daughter. And a great many say, well, I'm going to leave it to a Christian organization. Have you ever stopped to think how many of those Christian organizations have become apostate, and they've departed from teaching the Word of God. Did you know that Mr. Harvard, who founded Harvard University, was a fundamentalist just as much as you are, and he left his money to propagate the fundamental faith? <laughs> My friend, you wouldn't find fundamental faith in ten yards of Harvard today. The interesting thing is that it's departed from the faith. And... What he left came to naught. In fact, it's used for the very opposite. And a great many people today leave money to so-called fundamental organizations. How do you know that it will be carried on? And may I put in a plug, if you don't mind? We face that problem. And the point was, I didn't want to work hard and build up a radio program, then go off and turn it over to some fellow that would come along and say, well, you know, McGee was very much behind and 
we want to bring the program up to date and we want to make it relevant to the time and then start contradicting the things that I've taught. And we went back and have put a clause in the Constitution that this program operates under so that this program has to use my tapes long after I'm gone. And as long as there's money to carry on the program, you'll have to listen to my voice. But you're going to be sure one thing, you're going to hear the Word of God taught best I know how to teach it. And that's the thing I was concerned about. And so today, you can be sure of one place you can leave your money. And if you're in agreement with what we preach and teach, that's going to continue. It has to continue. This place would go out of business, but it has to be used for this and for nothing else. May I say to you today, friends, this is a problem that a great many people face, and Solomon faced that. And then read his story, that son of his that divided the kingdom. It was divided under him. He was responsible for it. Now, tragic it was. Now, will you notice, he goes on to say, he says in verse 19, "...who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool, that is, a godly man or a godless man, that'll take what you have made. Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun." This is also vanity. Solomon said to work for it and then turn it over to someone that's a fool, he says it's a waste of time. Verse 20, Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. Anything you do under the sun. You see, this is the wisdom of the man under the sun. He's apart from God. This is not the man seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. This is under the sun away from God. And pessimism is the outcome, always is. And it has to be here. And that's what it is. Verse 23, "...for all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night." This is vanity. And Solomon found out something else. Didn't do you any good to worry about it, because there's nothing you can do about it, my friend. Couldn't then. I think you can today. Now, verse 24, "...there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor." This also I saw, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. If you are just living today, just for self, even if you are God's man, and if you're a sinner, living for self, it'll come to naught. It will finally be bitterness in your heart, and it'll be bitterness in your mouth. Even And it'll be nothing in the world, but you'll hold just bitter dead leaves in your hands. That'll be life for you.